Welcome to Thought Leaders, a podcast dedicated connecting you to experts in the field of science, technology, healthcare, and business. I'm your host, Julie, and today's episode is centered on the topic of functional nucleic acids, a rapidly emerging field of study in chemistry and engineering. For the longest time, nucleic acids, such as DNA and RNA, were mainly known for their roles as carriers of hereditary information and instructions for the creation of proteins, respectively. However, more recently, we have really been able to see their potential beyond this. The best example of this is with the recent approval of the first ever mRNA-based vaccines by Moderna, Pfizer, and BioNTech. Similar to mRNA vaccines, functional nucleic acids are another class of nucleic acids which are characterized by their outstanding ability to bind to extremely specific targets and perform chemical reactions following binding, which is fundamental in a large number of applications. To dive into the world of functional nucleic acids, I am pleased to be joined by Dr. Aaron McConnell, an expert in this field of research. Aaron's impressive journey begins as a PhD candidate in Dr. Maria DeRosa's lab at Carleton University, where she investigated the development of functional nucleic acids for applications involving the central nervous system. From there, she started her postdoc in Dr. Yingfu Li's lab at McMaster University, where she not only led a team of researchers on the quest to develop biosensors aimed at detecting pathogenic bacteria, but also where she actually directly mentored me. And now she is currently doing her postdoc in Dr. Tabar Casa's lab at the University of Ottawa, where she's combining all that knowledge and expertise with nanopore technology for very exciting purposes, which we will discuss later on. So without further ado, let's get started. Thank you so much for joining me today, Erin. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I'm so proud of you and everything you've accomplished. And I'm really just excited to be part of this project. Of course, it's so nice to talk to you again after all these years. And I feel like so much has happened since we last had a real conversation. It's actually kind of crazy to even start thinking about, you know, however, since we're doing this from a podcast setting, we really should understand your journey from the beginning, right? Before we get into what you've been doing lately. So given that your journey in the world of functional nucleic acids sort of starts in your final years of undergraduate studies at Carleton University, um, when you made that decision to pursue your PhD in Dr. Maria DeRosa's lab. I was wondering if you could sort of walk us through that process and why you decided to study functional nucleic acids in particular. Yeah, sure. So I actually had no idea what functional nucleic acids were when I was in (laughs) undergrad. Um, I understood, you know, the idea of DNA and RNA and being uh, genetic information storage, kind of what everybody thinks of when we think of this helical kind of ladder or duplex of a molecule. But then I was in an organic chemistry class, actually. And my professor, for some, some, she must have done a class purposefully on kind of introducing research in the department or something. But I came to know about the type of research she was doing. And I found out that you could use DNA in a non-canonical or kind of non-traditional way to build these little molecular recognition tools that were similar to antibodies, meaning that they could very specifically recognize and bind to one target. And then we could kind of use that as a tool to build therapeutics and diagnostics uh, and biosensors, like you were saying. And so I started doing research in her lab as um, 
an undergraduate volunteer, I think. Uh, and then, of course, at the undergraduate level, there's always kind of opportunities to apply for uh, research awards. And so I did that, did a couple of summers in her lab. Um, I was fortunate in that way. And then I decided, hey, this is really cool. I, I'm kind of getting to see the process of potentially making a therapeutic right from the lab to the bedside. Uh, and so I really just kind of got hooked and uh, decided to stay in that field. Yeah, that's so interesting. And that's so great. It was just a sudden chemistry class. And it really led you down this journey of really, really getting into it and becoming an expert now. So that's so cool. And I definitely learned a lot, like quite a bit of this while working with you. Like you mentioned earlier, the field of nucleic acids, it's, it's so much more beyond just like being a piece of DNA or RNA that we're so familiar with. And the field of nucleic acids and specifically functional nucleic acids has so much potential for growth and, you know, such a large handful of applications beyond the bench, like you mentioned. And most of us haven't even really heard of it. So I was wondering, you know, given this expertise of functional nucleic acids, and I, I know that you're very specialized involving aptamers. So can you sort of explain what an aptamer is and perhaps some ways that they're currently being utilized in the real world today? Yeah, absolutely. So aptamers were kind of my first love with functional nucleic acids, also my first um, hate. But I say that just because, you know, anyone who's been in, in academic research or grad school kind of knows that feeling. I absolutely love the ability of a small piece of DNA to act as a specific kind of recognition element, meaning that if you think of kind of like a locking key model, you have one thing that is recognized by another. And when they interact, they do a very specific task. And so for the lock and key model, you know, you're, you're opening a lock with the key, but with an aptamer, you are recognizing a potential. Oftentimes it's a, a biomarker or say a toxin in the environment, or uh, there's even some for gases actually, which is really cool. And so you can use these kind of very small pieces of single stranded, they can be DNA or RNA. Typically now researchers use DNA because chemically it's just a little bit more stable and they form kind of these unique structures. So rather than just forming this kind of double helix ladder that uh, most people are familiar with, if you've taken any sort of biology courses, um, they can form these really kind of small, almost like knots in a way. Um, and that structure allows them to interact very specifically with just one target. And so we know that if that aptamer has bound its target, say a protein or a cell, it could be like a cancer cell, then we know that that is what it's bound to. And so we can use that uh, to build other tools um, like diagnostics and therapeutics and sensors. Yeah. So those are all really exciting applications that you sort of touch upon, you know, environmental purposes, medical diagnostics, that, you know, all of this shows that functional nucleic acids, such as aptamers, can really make a difference across many different disciplines. So thank you for giving us a glimpse into potentially some of the things that are currently being developed behind the scenes right now. Um, so Erin has written a lot of review papers on these type of subjects in a lot of greater detail. So if anyone wants to learn more, all you have to do is check out her profile on Google Scholar. Anywho, all of this sort of bridges into another topic that I wanted to discuss with you, um, which is the process of translating this research into a tangible product that can be used outside of the lab. Um, can you sort of walk us through, or I guess give us an insider perspective on how much work truly goes into this process and how long would you say that it takes on average? So 
it really depends on the application. So I like to say that aptamers are um, applicable for applications from A to Z, being like agriculture to zoology. Uh, within those applications, there's certainly timelines that are specific to kind of the regulatory body that you would be making an application for. So for instance, something that has to do with the environment is going to likely take a little bit less time than something that you want to put in a human um, as like a therapeutic. That's kind of goes along the same lines kind of in the middle would be food. So something that would apply to kind of like food safety or food quality, those maybe would take a little bit longer to approve than say a sensor you're making to detect contaminants in like lake water or something like that. It can go, so a selection for an aftermer typically can take anywhere, I would say from a few weeks to maybe a year to select decent aftermers that have really good kind of binding activity. Once you have the selection done, you then have to characterize them. So you you have to see how well they find and interact with their target, whether they uh, are interacting with any kind of similar target, whether they're stable and they still interact, say, in something complex. So in the lab, we're doing most of our experiments basically in water with some extra salt. Um, but what we want to test is, say, we took river water. Would it still work in that environment? Say we took milk or apple juice or blood, a blood sample, will the aptamer still work in that? So that sort of evaluation can take probably anywhere from three, three months to six months. And then the next kind of process here that a researcher would kind of get to would be, where do I want to go with this? So do I want to build a biosensor? Well, if you want to build a biosensor, then you need to collaborate with maybe some engineers, um, maybe a, a startup company or um, an established company that kind of takes on a mind of its own and then can be developed really quickly, as we know with the example of the rapid tests for COVID-19. The other side of things is, is this something we want to put in a human? Is it a potential therapeutic? Do we want to use it in a clinical setting? So say in a doctor's office or in a hospital. In that case, you would go through a series of clinical trials and clinical trials can, depending on the complexity, the kind of availability of the population. So say you were working with a rare disease, it would take longer to put through than something common. So the reason why the COVID-19 vaccines and that got approved so quickly is because so many people were sick. So they were able to get all the statistics they needed. But if you were working with say a rare disease or even a disease that was just less common, common, uh, it can take a little bit longer. And so there really is kind of a variation between how long it would take from the first experiments in the lab to when it's actually applied. But I have seen examples where it's been within like five to 10 years, where it's the very first experiments happen to the point where it's potentially in an end user's hand um, doing these assays. Yeah, that's crazy, like five to 10 years. And like, I'm sure there's so many projects that, you know, don't even make it to that point, right? They just end up not working and you can't really do anything about it. So that's a lot of time and effort. And another part of the equation that I wanted to touch upon is like money and funding, which is like another, <laughs> another mm -hmm. part of it. So can you walk us through the process of how scientists such as yourself would fund projects and how much money it really takes? 
Yeah, sure. So there's like everything in science and scientific research, there's kind of multiple layers. So the first kind of thing as a student would be how do you fund yourself? So if you want to work in a lab, if you want to work in any lab, like take your pick. Usually if you bring your own funding, that's possible. So kind of the first challenge is can you get funding for yourself? And the way that you can do that in Canada would be to uh, go through one of kind of the major granting institutions. So that would be NSERC, uh, SHRC, CHIR, no, CIHR. So one of those kind of big agencies that will have like graduate scholarship or an undergraduate scholarship. And typically those would pay your research stipend. So that's kind of the first side of things. Then as a professor, you are looking to be able to fund people So manpower, as well as funding the research. So typically you would have um, a grant that you would submit that would contain all sorts of information. So how much money you need for equipment, how much money you need for reagents. So the things that you're kind of using in the experiment, Um, like if you're going to buy DNA, that would be a reagent. If you're buying proteins to assess reagents, same the things that kind of get used up uh, cost a bunch of money. Then you have the people so who are you staffing to work on this? And then there's, there can be other overheads. Like uh, if you're going to publish this research, if you're going to go to a conference to present it, um, all of these things cost money. And so they, it adds up pretty quickly. In Canada, there's kind of these main granting agencies, which will fund academic research. Um, and then there's other kind of research specific opportunities. Um, so say you're doing cancer research, well, maybe you can get a grant from the Canadian Cancer Society, or you're doing Parkinson's research, for instance, you can get it from the Michael J. Fox Foundation, uh, things like this. And so these types of grants, depending on the research, if it's more like agriculture or, or kind of like food, um, things that are kind of outside of the body tend to be smaller grants, but more frequent. So you, you're, you can be more successful. And when I say smaller grants, I'm talking like 20 to like a hundred thousand dollars. And then if you're doing health stuff, there tends to be a lot of competition for these, a lot of opportunities, but they will grant more money. So you end up, you know, these are the ones that are in the millions of dollars kind of thing. And so those sorts of grants typically would go to like teams of researchers and then get kind of trickled down. So in terms of a project from start to finish, including all of these factors we're considering, I would say we're talking in the like hundreds of thousands of dollars, just when you consider you have to pay a livable wage to the staff who are working for you. So that money gets used up, at least a hundred grand gets used up pretty quickly. And then if you're a grad student, you're there for two to four to five, maybe longer years. Um, And so within a salary, that's a big chunk of it. To do just the science, I would say probably for an Aptmer project, uh, you're thinking still under a hundred thousand, but that's just the lab experiments. Then once you start moving into like clinical trials, potentially um, scaling up manufacturing, things like that, the money starts going like cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching quite quickly. (laughs) So it really kind of depends on the situation and like the final goal. Yeah. So since you've sort of been in like the field of research for a while now, do you think there's more funding available now compared to maybe like 10 years ago? 
Yeah. So that's a great question. So definitely, I think there are more funding opportunities, especially because now you're seeing a kind of an emergence of like citizen funded science where you can do kind of these like GoFundMe for startup companies uh, that are doing science or for fundraising for kind of individualized patient care. This is kind of one thing that's on the mind of researchers, certainly in the medical fields, the kind of like idea of personalized medicine for individual people and kind of where does that money come from if it's for, if it's benefiting the greater good or if it's benefiting one person, kind of the opportunities for funding change. Traditionally, funding came from very heavily regulated organizations. And so now there's a little bit more opportunity. That said, there's going to be more competition because now people can, I won't say whether they should or not, actually, no, they shouldn't be doing science in their garage, but some people are doing things like that. If you think about kind of like these biohackers, there's some really cool conversations around that. Uh, But for kind of legitimate academic scientific research, uh, I do think there are a lot more opportunities for funding, but there's also more people in science. So the opportunities are increasing, but the competition is also ever increasing. Uh, In my own experience, it's becoming more and more difficult to get kind of these like seed funding or these like initial opportunities. And the problem is you have this effect of like this like snowball effect where getting grants makes it easier to get more grants. So you have a certain population of people who are quite successful because they just continue to be successful. And then other people who are kind of very resourceful finding other ways to kind of make it happen. But definitely I to answer your question kind of in a long, very long cyclical way. Yes, I think there is more opportunities for funding now, but I'm not sure that it necessarily outweighs the proportion of scientists that are in the field. I see what you're saying. So basically there's, there's the funding's increasing, but so are the number of people in the field. And that's a really important thing to consider. So since you mentioned like some seed funding, do you think outside of these organizations, there's also like private investors that would invest in scientific research as well, like venture capital kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So a lot of, a lot of academic science, research can only go so far. Uh, So it gets to a point where within a lab, within the expertise of that lab or within the expertise of that kind of institution, it it has gone as far as it can go. So the next step is to take it to a company, to either collaborate with a company, to to make a startup, um, to kind of progress in that direction where you can then raise funds by investors uh, who believe in the technology, who can help kind of foot the bill for moving and progressing the technology forward. That's absolutely effective strategy that's being used, especially in the kind of biotech sphere, biomedical sphere, even in the research that I'm not as familiar with, there's, you know, startups kind of everywhere. And what's, what's really interesting is kind of the aim of these startups is to sell them. So a lot of biomedical companies will get a startup, get traction, get it moving, and then they're bought up by like Pfizer or another big kind of like pharmaceutical company. Uh, And so that's kind of unique to the biomedical realm, but that's really where I've, I've kind of had the most personal experience. So that's kind of the perspective I can bring on that. 
Yeah, that definitely is a good strategy if, you know, funding is sort of tight and if you want to scale up and all that. So yeah, I'm really glad that we were able to discuss that as I feel like sometimes, you know, we take for granted how much time, effort and money is is really invested into R&D related projects. So it's good that we were able to shed a light on that matter. And hopefully people can have a greater sense of appreciation for scientists and researchers who are, you know, devoted to making the world a better place. Um, so granted that most of our discussion, for the most part, has been focused on academia kind of research. I was wondering if you could walk us through the relationship between academia, pharma, and biotech. I know we sort of touched upon it, but you know, in terms of collaborations, handing off research projects, and commercialization. Yeah, sure. So there's kind of a, I would say a symbiotic relationship between academic research and industry. So industry does do some kind of basic science in the sense that I mean, at the bench doing kind of really fundamental stuff, but it's generally in a specific direction towards a very specific aim for a bigger kind of picture project that they're working on. And because the money is kind of allocated differently, the milestones and the time points and these sorts of things that happen with progressing a research project forward are oftentimes very accelerated. So it'll be kind of like a, let's see if it works. If it works, great, move forward. If it doesn't work, kind of stop, cut our losses and go. Um, Whereas in academia, it's kind of a little bit, there's a little bit more freedom in the sense of kind of moving at a pace that allows for, I think, a lot more kind of troubleshooting and taking kind of taking kind of the investigation in kind of some parallel or sideways directions versus kind of very linear, a very linear projection. That said, I think industry oftentimes will rely on a lot of progress that's made in academia because they'll kind of be monitoring and picking up on what really is potentially the next breakthrough in basic science uh, and being able to translate that into um, something that's useful clinically. Or I shouldn't say that's useful, but because obviously fundamental science needs to be done, but there's certain roadblocks you can hit in kind of an academic institution that industry can kind of really kind of inject some um, energy in and resources and funds and move forward. So what you'll see is the the lines are kind of much blurrier than that uh, in a lot of instances. A lot of instances, there will be funding that's available for collaborations that are already established or that are going to be established between academia and industry. So for example, the Canadian government will fund a certain amount of a grant as long as a company agrees to match that or contribute a certain dollar value. Or they contribute in different ways. They contribute maybe research space, maybe research uh, infrastructure, so equipment, uh, maybe people, maybe expertise. And so it's really kind of this this kind of dependent relationship that allows for this kind of interaction. And so one of the biggest things you'll notice, I've been very privileged to be a part of the oligonucleotide therapeutic society, and they have a, a big conference every year. And it's very much academia and industry. And you can always tell the people in industry because they're much more kind of cautious about what data they present. They want to tell kind of the positive stories that they'll present negative results, of course, but the, the stories are always more, much more complete versus in academia. It's kind of like, this is where I'm at. <laughs> uh, let's have some discussions. Let's, let's see where we can move forward. And hopefully you'll see this in, in the clinic uh, or in industry in, in a few years time kind of thing. So I think definitely the lines are not kind of as strong between if you go into academic research, absolutely. You can go into industry. That's 
usually kind of the linear trajectory that you would go through graduate school, then you would get an opportunity to do some research in industry. That could be a collaboration between your supervisor and the company, or it could be that you get hired because of the skills that you've acquired in academic research, you get hired into industry. And so I think the relationship is maybe not as separate as there tends to be kind of this idea that it is. Uh, but definitely they're kind of two distinct worlds that are very much kind of overlapping. If you kind of think of like a Venn diagram, there's definitely a sweet spot where, you, where people can exist if they want to between both worlds. Yeah. So that's something I noticed as well when we were working together in Dr. Yingfili's lab, you know, mm-hmm. as our specific project was in collaboration with that water testing company. So mm-hmm. it's it's something really apparent even from the beginning. And yeah, so thanks for walking us through that, Erin, because I'm sure that there's like many students in STEM right now who are in that phase where they are like unsure about what they want to do with their lives and would find this information really, really useful. And in general, I think it's important for people to understand this relationship given that oftentimes life-changing products come out of these industries. Um, So shifting gears a little bit, I wanted to touch upon what you've been up to lately. So you're a postdoc in Dr. Tabard Costa's lab right now. And I was wondering if you could walk us through the process of picking this lab in particular and, you know, introduce us to some of the exciting science that's currently happening there. Yeah, sure. So seemingly what the research that's being done in the Tabard-Casa lab is very different than the expertise that I had. Um, If you kind of just look at it from the outside, if you like click around on the website. Um, But really what I'm there to do is to use my expertise in DNA, DNA nanotechnology, DNA functional nucleic acids, and also learn things about other technologies like DNA origami. uh, And we apply these to something called solid state nanopores. And so solid state nanopores are a really fascinating technology for detection in that they allow researchers to look at a single molecule event. So basically a nanopore is a small hole in a membrane on nanometer scale. So billionth of a meter, these pores are maybe five to 10 nanometers in size. And we apply voltage across the membrane and the voltage uh, is measured and so the current rather is measured. And so you see kind of this characteristic fingerprint baseline of the molecules, the sensing solution that's passing through. So like lithium chloride or potassium chloride, for example. And then when something passes through the nanopore that's much bigger than salt, you see this very characteristic kind of fingerprint spike. And this trace gives you an indication of what molecules are in solution. So we can look at it and we can say, oh, this is a a DNA molecule that is shaped like a star, a nanostructure that's shaped like a star. This one is a nanostructure that's shaped like a triangle. This one maybe has a protein interacting with it. And so from that, we can distinguish separate populations and we can assign or distinguish kind of like a a sensitivity through that. So we can do detection of biomolecules at a very sensitive level. So like picomolar or low kind of like femtomolar. So very, very small amounts of uh, our target of interest in a very small volume, actually. And what's really cool about this technology is right now we're doing it with one pore in one membrane, but you could imagine that you could kind of 
make these devices where there's multiple pores. And so you can detect even more and increase the sensitivity even more. And the idea is that eventually we'll be able to build these tools that allow us to detect biomarkers in very small amounts of, say, blood or uh, sputum, so like spit, um, or other biological fluids that would be able to give us a very quick kind of yes or no reading or a very quick reading of exactly the amount of this biomarker that's in solution. And so I ended up in this lab because I was really attracted to this kind of relatively new technology with so much potential uh, and kind of a different perspective on sensing. And so I'm really enjoying my time here. I'm, I'm learning so much every day, which is so cool. I'm learning kind of from a physics and engineering perspective, which is absolutely, I would say the best thing you can do as a scientist is learn everything you can from as many different perspectives as you can, because it really helps you kind of like broaden your experience, but broaden your knowledge and really broaden your approach to solving problems. And so I would definitely recommend that experience. And I would recommend the Tabar Casa lab, if people are looking, he's at University of Ottawa in the Department of Physics. Great lab, great supervisor, great people. I'm really happy for you that you found like a really good lab and something that you're super interested in. And even though you've been in school for like so long, you're still learning. Approximately <laughs> a million years. Yes. yes. <laughs> still learning. And, and that's really good. So it's really interesting that you mentioned nanopores because I've actually done a little bit of research on companies that are in this nanopore space for Apollo Institute in our DNA sequencing series. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you heard of this, but there's something called nanopore sequencing, which sort of yep. utilizes the same principle, just like dragging a piece of DNA through the nanopore in order to get like a reading of like the sequence of DNA. And that could sort of be like a big thing in personalized medicine applications. So there's a lot of companies like Roche and a lot of small companies as well in pharma and biotech that are trying to develop and get in this nanopore-based sequencing space. So I just wanted to share that interesting fact. Dr. Tabard Costa's lab definitely seems like it's in a very interesting and exciting field of study, like you said, and it could be a really big thing in the future. So I think you made a really, really good choice. I know you haven't been in the lab for too long, but do you have an idea of what you want to do after this experience? Yeah, so I really love, I love teaching, I love learning, I love scientific research. So I really want to be in a space that allows me to explore those different avenues. I really am interested in biosensing, but I'm also interested in the therapeutic side of things. And so I would really like to develop an independent research career. I would like to be in an institution as a, either as like a research scientist or as um, a principal investigator or as an assistant professor where I'm able to have a group of people and we can work as a team to investigate new scientific ideas uh, and kind of put all of my expertise into a package that kind of blends well together and is able to kind of look at some some new frontiers. So interesting. And, you know, I'm obviously hoping the best for you and that journey. I'll be following you very closely to see, you know, your progress on that. Um, so as our conversation comes closer to the end, I wanted to touch upon two topics that I know are sort of big parts of your professional identity, you know, besides, of course, being a brilliant scientist and somehow always having like such excitement and energy in the lab, uh, which are mentorship and being a woman in STEM. So like I mentioned earlier, you were my mentor and I was amongst like the many students that you had under your wing. You 
you've been a member of Girl Guides of Canada for over 30 years, and you're a member of the Canadian Association for Girls in Science. And I'm sure there's many other associations and initiatives such as these that you've been involved with. So I wanted to ask you why mentorship is so important for you personally and sort of get your perspectives on why it's especially important for young for young women who are starting out their journey in STEM. I love this question. First of all, though, I have to say that it's easy to come across as a good mentor when you have amazing students. So that's thanks to you, Julie, because you're amazing. I think mentorship is especially important because it really fosters an opportunity for a team to work together where people are given the resources that they need to succeed, but also given enough space to be successful independently. I think that it's important. I, I would say it's more important to find a good mentor, someone that you fit well, someone that you know will champion you, not only when you're in their lab, um, but also when you're out of their lab. Like you want a good relationship with the people who you are building your career. You want that for years to come. You don't want to just find someone's lab who's doing hot new science and kind of go there for the name. You want to go somewhere where you know you're going to be supported and you're going to be kind of given opportunities and shown kind of the way of how you can kind of successfully navigate this world. I think especially not only for women, but for anyone who is in an underrepresented minority, especially for those who have identities that intersect between multiple uh, underrepresented minorities, it's so, so important to find a mentor. That said, your mentor doesn't have to be your supervisor. So you You can be in a research group in research that you love with someone who is, you know, obviously you never stay somewhere that's toxic for you, but you can be somewhere where you're just collegial. But if you have a mentor who can help you still navigate that process, even if they're not in the lab, um, but maybe they're doing something that you see yourself doing in the future. It's so, so, so important to build that network. I think it's important to mentor students because in doing so, not only do you learn kind of about yourself and you learn new ways to kind of teach and to mentor, you really kind of can learn exactly what you need and give that to kind of the next generation. I really feel like scientists, just scientists in general, have a responsibility to change the culture so that it is the most supportive um, for everyone who wants to be involved in science. Uh, And I think having good mentorship and good mentorship kind of relationships like multi-generational I guess through different labs and and scientists can really make a huge difference and really kind of push the field more towards a more positive place where there's less kind of toxic academic culture and this exists also in in industry and and other kind of facets of science but like I said my experience is in kind of academia but I personally uh just I love mentorship also because obviously I love talking maybe that's a big part of it I just (laughs) like developing relationships with great people um and I really really love my favorite thing as a mentor is seeing people succeed and so being involved in this podcast has really just been such a pleasure for me especially to see how well you're doing Julie and I've, I've been keeping an eye on you too and I know you're doing great things but yeah and then if I can just touch on Uh, the other organizations I've been involved with, each of those things kind of started as like a single event. So there was, you know, uh, we were extracting DNA on some sort of the International Day of Women and Girls in Science or something. And I got involved in, in one thing and I really just 
found an outlet for my passion for kind of teaching um, and learning and uh, science communication. And I really just love kind of watching people have those light bulb moments. Uh, and I love mentoring and empowering younger women and girls. And so it was really kind of a natural fit to go from Girl Guides of Canada into the Canadian Association for Girls in Science. But I definitely, I think that, you know, kids are the future. And so if we can support them, if we can change the perceptions and the kind of stereotypes that exist uh, in that generation and kind of show these kids that, you know, they can do whatever they want, they can be successful in whatever realm they want to be successful, then I think that at the end of the day, then we've done our job as scientists uh, and as mentors. Well, I can't agree with you anymore, especially in the research and academia settings. Like you said, as a young undergrad student, you're pretty much thrown into an entirely new and highly specialized field of study where you're surrounded by senior scientists that have been doing this for years, decades even. And it's really important to have a mentor that's not only going to support your growth, but also your learning experience. And it's important to present opportunities to younger people to, you know, foster that sense of passion and curiosity that will turn you into a great scientist, like you were saying. So of course, shout out to you for being an amazing mentor for me during my time in Dr. Ying Fuli's lab, and even today for being an amazing guest on today's episode. So before we head into the concluding remarks, I wanted to give you the opportunity to, you know, shout out anything at all. The floor is yours. Oh, wow. That is such a big responsibility. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I really, I would be um, remiss if not to thank my mentors. So I've had some really incredible mentors in my experience. Uh, like you mentioned, Maria Drosa at Carleton University is incredible. Um, she continues to be an amazing support system for me. Ying Fu Lee at McMaster University is great. Uh, he's so funny. He always has like great science to offer and great life advice. Uh, uh, and my uh, supervisor now, Vincent Tabarcasa, is amazing. He's he's a younger scientist, but he really has an amazing kind of uh, sense of what students need and how to be an incredibly supportive mentor that I really respect. And so each of them I've been able to learn quite a bit from, and I, they've all shaped me as a scientist. And then also all of the trainees that I've had the privilege of working with have really kind of made me who I am and kind of taught me more than I could, I'm sure, have ever taught them. And so I just want to thank everyone. And I, I think as the kids do, they shout out to their social media, right? So yes. <laughs> I should say, yeah, that's probably what you were asking, but not like my Academy Award speech. But uh, so my socials, I, I have Twitter because I'm old. Uh, that's the only one. But it's at bluebird underscore underscore. So two underscores, 47. And that's my, I tweet mostly about science, women in science, kind of cool things that are going on and occasionally something about the Spice Girls, which is also very important that the next generation knows about. Yes. So make sure you go check her out on Twitter. So with all of that in mind, this episode of Thought Leaders comes to a wrap. I hope my discussion with Erin was able to introduce you to the world of functional nucleic acids and how they will become more prevalent in society as the science continues to progress. Scientific research is always an uphill battle with lots of uncertainties, successful and failed experiments that take a lot of time, effort, funding, and even luck as we talked about today. So I hope that we can now recognize and have a greater sense of appreciation for all the scientists out there who are trying their best to make our lives better. 
With more thought leaders to join the discussion in the future, I hope you all stay tuned for the next one. If you would like to learn more about thought leaders, want to learn more about these type of subjects, or would like to become a guest on this show, please check out apollo-institute.org forward slash thought leaders.